History lecture number seven, Rabbi Blyweis. We are um, rounding out the Avos and a little bit on Yaakov Avinu. We, we actually met him yesterday. He is considered the Bachir Shala Avos. As it were, Bachir is the same root as the term Bachor, as the elder, the, oh, the firstborn. What does that mean? He's, he's got a certain primacy for the following reasons. Chazal say he is the, of the three Avos, he's the one without blemish because all of his children are tzaddikim and the same can't be said about Avram as we met, Yishmael and Bnei Keturah, and the same certainly can't be said about Yitzchak as we met Asa. But with the case of Yaakov, all of his sons are pure, righteous men, tzaddikim, all of them. I, you may counter, oh, what did, what did Reuven do? And what about, what about all, the, all the criticism we have of Yehuda? And what about the selling of Yosef collectively and the rest of that? These, these, this is, all these are examples that come to show you that there's no human ain sadik shalochata in the world, as Chazal say. Actually, I paraphrase that, but there's no, there's no righteous man who doesn't sin. All of us, everybody from top down, have their problems, and the Torah holds the tzaddikim to a very high level and faults them when they, when they mess up. But Chazal are explicit in saying their faults by most of us would be virtues. Well, no. right, they're, they're, and, and the selling of Yosef was l'shem shemaim, as we'll as we'll, we'll discuss very briefly. Um, but they were all considered, all counted as pure and righteous individuals. Yaakov is our vision of pure emes, ten emes Yaakov, which needs a little bit of explication because in the, those early phases of his life, it seems like he's. Uh, deceptive as he gets the Bukhira and the Bracha and 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 the famous Rashi explains the Pasuk, he says in, in response to Yitzchak's question, Who are you? he says, Ani Esav with the Lashon of the Pasuk, Esav Bukhorecha. And it's a correct statement. I am. Period. Full stop. And Esav is your eldest son. Okay? Right. So Chazal, Chazal say, Emes. Emes is fundamentally, it's certainly about seeking truth, but it's seeking truth by serving a Kaddish Baruch. Because Yaakov here, with the guidance of his mother Rivka, understands that he must have the bracha for Esav. Harasha to get the bracha would be cataclysmic for the world, and therefore what he's doing is L'shem Shemaim. And I'll give you a, an analogy. This is actually a true story. Guy comes over to his friend recently got married. And he's invited, his chavrusa is invited for dinner, for Shabbos dinner, this new young couple. And the newly married husband at the end of the meal turns to his friend and he said, you know, how, was, how did you enjoy your dinner? And the chavrusa responded as follows, in the presence of the wife who'd made everything. He said, well, the chicken was underdone, rice was crunchy, and the vegetables had no flavor. At which point the wife proceeded to go run off to her bedroom in tears. And the newly married man said to his friend, he said, <coughs> what were you thinking? Why would you speak that way? And the man said, I don't tell a lie. You asked me a question, I responded with emes. And the answer is, that's not emes. That's not emes. Emes is in the service of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. You, um, you can't say something that's going to destroy somebody. What you could say, and the Pesach says, notice the Pesach says, you should distance yourself from a lie and we should strive to be as truthful as we possibly can but the Pasuk itself includes and allows for the possibility that there are times that you can't tell the unadulterated truth because you're going to destroy people unnecessarily as is that case with the guy and, and, and that poor young wife 
You know what he could have said? He could have said something absolutely truthful um, that also is not going to put her down. Like, for example, wow, this is amazing. How long have you been married? You're already able to put a hot Shabbos meal on the table. Meaning, praise the people for what, you know, for what they deserve credit for. Not Forget the quality of the food. Just the very fact that she could put together a meal as a newly married woman is, is worth Praising. And the company was nice. And the company was nice. Oh, if I, I, you know, I hear the point. Uh, you do our best. <laughs> okay. You have, to under, you, have to, you have to evaluate. You have to evaluate the circumstances. Yaakov knew, in other words, the reason we associate Emmons with Yaakov, what we're striving for. He, kn- he knows the right way of placing truth. We know that in keeping mitzvahs, it's often a very finely calibrated balancing act of doing the right thing. You know, here's one of my pet issues. There's an Isidiraisa that doesn't get enough airplay. It's called Onus Dvarim. Who can translate the term? Basic Lav Diraisa, basic Torah prohibition called Onus Dvarim. Familiar? No, no, it's not Nebel Peh. It's saying or doing anything that's going to cause <laughs> another Jew to feel bad. Basic Lav Diraisa. Obviously, it includes and usually overlaps with Lashon Hara, but not just. You know an example of uh, Onus Dvarim? Watch my face. Onus Dvarim could be something as subtle and simple as this. A mere eye roll, right? It's, it's, it could absolutely put somebody down, put them in their place and make them feel awful. So if you take that and you take all the other things we're trying to accomplish in this world, sometimes the way to tell the truth is not to blurt out what you think is honest. And that's what Yaakov had a mastery of. Yaakov especially is a good example of that because his life is so complicated. He has such service, such difficult times. There's a long list of people who gave it to him from his brother, from his, to his uncle, Esav, to Lavan, uh, to the episode of the selling of Yosef, and then again what happened with Binyamin. And don't forget, we skipped also what happened to Dina. And he had hardship. He knew from difficulty, and yet he strove through everything to lead a life of intellectual honesty. He struggles for one four, 147 years. He's the youngest of the Avos, his shortest, of, shortest lifespan, uh, and remains a perfect sadik. It's fitting because he had such a life of struggle that his, his offspring would have struggles as well. We are referred to as the chief of the Avos as Yisrael collectively. We're Am Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, and we identify with him, so it's worthwhile, at least that we should briefly review some of the key features of his life. In the Gemara in Kedushin, we find that a person, we learn, we learn a halacha that could be relevant for a lot of us here. You're supposed to learn a lot of Torah. Fill yourself up with Torah before you get married. Only afterwards you should go get married. That's brought down as halacha l'maisa. So then we find Yaakov Avinu, who disappears into the base Medrash. He learns by Avram Avinu, as we saw for his first 15 years. He learns in the yeshiva of Shem and Aver. He's not punished for all those years that he's sitting there learning by Shaven Aver, and that's a punished meaning um, he doesn't go back, and he's not uh, he's not with his parents, but that's not considered neglecting kibudav aim. He's not neglecting them because he's doing a higher imperative by learning in yeshiva. I wasn't necessarily going to go there, but you know what? I can't resist. There's a wonderful halacha that I tend to cite every year, especially as guys sometimes struggle to come back for Shana Base or Gimel, and their parents don't want them to. They say, get on with your life. Get a, get, a, get a job. Go to college and so on. I do point out to you this brought down the halacha. Go look up in the, in the Shulchan Aruch and Simon Reish Mem in the Yeridea. 
we find that the Mahabra teaches us that if the son sees a certain siman bracha for his learning, he sees a sign of blessing in his learning, and he wants to learn in a certain place, in a certain way, for a certain period of his life, and his parents say no, it's one of the many examples of a time where you can ignore your parents, respectfully, because there's a, still in a, a mitzvah kibbut avim, but you don't listen to them. Listening to them not to learn Torah is not fulfilling kibbut avim, it's the opposite. Because even they have an obligation to bring you closer to Kaddish Baruch Hu, and, um, and Yaakov Avinu is an example of that. He sat and he learned all those years, and as much as, you know, he wasn't as attentive as a son as he could have been, but that was okay because he was sitting in the base medrash, learning all those years. He will learn, he actually knew shame, he knew Aver, no, he knew Aver, he didn't know shame. Aver was actually in his last years. By then, two years before Aver dies at the old age of 464, Yaakov leaves the yeshiva. He is characterized as Ish Tam Yoshev Ohalim. He is a simple, pure man of pure faith who dwells in tents, tents of Yaakov, of course, the base Medrash, and he continually learns throughout his life which is then explains that Chazal connect these things the following episode he goes out to Haran to find a wife as his, as his mother had sent him out to oh, Uncle Lavan and who should he find by the well a group of not very friendly townsmen who he says he has this um, almost comical conversation in Parshish Vayetze where he says uh, oh do you know Bisuel and they say you know and is it okay with him and, and Yoko's very, Yaakov is, is, is uh, effusive and warm and he says do you know him and they say Shalom right they say yes he's okay they give him staccato kinds of one word answers and then you remember how they, their arrangement was over back in Haran nobody trusted one another you know kind of like humanity because most people kind of like that. We don't trust anybody. So what did they do? What was the rule? There was, they had a massive boulder over that well so that nobody could move the, the boulder into the well because they didn't trust one another. The only way of moving it was that all of them had to work together and that was the only way you could access water was when they were all there so nobody could sneak in the middle of the night and take all the water. Yaakov comes along, of course, and he, I always picture him sort of like a biblical... Uh, Harlem Globetrotter who takes the rock and like dribbles it around and does a couple uh, you know of, of like freestyle throws uh, with the rock and he picks it up what ten men can't pick up on their own he picks up without a problem because I'll say Yaakov was a man of immense physical strength and again you see this theme his spiritual strength manifested itself in the physical world these two worlds overlap and, and, um, and, and co uh, co coincide in this way. When you have a spiritual mastery, it actually spills over into physical accomplishments. And all of that is from his learning, from his, his immense midos. You also see it in another very um, famous quality that Yaakov Avinu uh, emitted. Everybody saw it. You, it, was, it was one of the first things you noticed. He was so immensely handsome, he glowed. That's, that's one of the qualities, again, the spirituality shines through in the physicality. So much so that in the description of the Maisim Rekava, the divine chariot, which is the ultimate vision, as described in Yechezkel, the ultimate vision of Hashem's spirituality, there are four faces, you know this? Four faces that adorn the divine chariot. Um, they are an ox, and an eagle, and a lion, and a human face. And the human face is described as being Yaakov's face. That is the emblem of the ultimate face. His face, his, 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 his beauty is equated back to Adam's original beauty. Adam was, was the most spectacularly beautiful person, but Yaakov trumped Adam by having an immense spirituality, and that, and that will even improve the physical appearance. He also 
Yeah, he's cited in the Mish, in, excuse me, in the Gemara and Baba Mitzi as being one of the most beautiful people ever alive. Last comment on beauty. Beauty, together with wisdom, together with a lot of our inborn virtues, are no reason for arrogance. You ever wonder how silly it is that sometimes naturally good-looking people or naturally brilliant people let those things go to their head? They didn't do that. Gaspar gave them those things. Use them for good. Then you can already maybe take some credit for it. But the fact that a person's good-looking, that's not their doing. There's a pasuk in Rus that makes an interesting reference to Rachel and Leah uh, as great, great, two of the, the last two of the, uh, the major Avosimahos that we need to discuss. And the pasuk says that it credits Rachel and Leah with building Israel, building Klal Yisrael. And you find this also in Parshish Vayetze, all of their actions could be understood within the prism of building the nation. When they vie over having that evening with Yaakov Avinu, they understood that it was their mission to bring new life into the world, to nurture Yaakov's seed into life, and to raise these kids to be tzaddikim. And they took their mission very, very serious. That's seriously. That's why Rachel, when she doesn't, when she can't have children, complains to Yaakov. She says, "I'm a dead person without children." And what she's really saying is that I, uh, my whole life is dedicated to Kiddush Hashem, and my my mission in the world is, of course, to nurture seed, your seed, and bring them, bring about a great nation. Um, and Kaddish Baruch Hu saw her sincerity and enabled her to do so. Everything that they do is L'shem Shemayim. One finds this also, Maisa Avos, in this case, Maisa Imahos, the acts of our foremothers is a Simon, foremothers is a Simon Levonim. We find this later where we find the women who are able to, in the darkest of times, make sure that Jewish life continues. We talked about it yesterday with the, they're, they're the key to civilization. That's why they're um, faulted for adultery more than men. What's that? In the story of Lot. In the story of Lot. Oh, very good. They, they, take a, they, they, they take a cue from the Avos. They understand that the, you know, they thought, to their credit, Benos Lot thought that the world was destroyed and that it was their job to bring about the perpetuation of the species. Okay, Dad's the only man around. That's what we got to do. Okay? Um, but where in Kuala Yisrael do we find this exact same impulse within women? We've got to have children in the darkest of times. Mitzrayim, Shifra, Pua, but not just Shifra, Pua, the women of right, six kids per pregnancy. And Tapuach under the tree, they use mirrors, and the same mirrors the women will dedicate to the tabernacle, to the Mishkan. The Moshe didn't want them because he interpreted the mirrors as being signs of arrogance. Hashem said those are the most precious articles in the Mishkan because they were used lishma when the men came back from backbreaking slave work in Egypt they saw their wives being beautiful because the, the women made themselves beautiful and they cohabited with their wives so they could build a nation so we find it famously in Israel where else we find that in the Jewish people exactly Rachel and Leah's quality we find it when was when was Mitzrayim arguably was one of the two times in history that was literally a population explosion we literally became a massive nation, 600,000 men, but probably somewhere upward of 3 million people in Mitzrayim. Where, where else is one of the time in history, I don't know if you know this, there's one really, uh, uh, we'll do some demographics later on, where the Jewish people just explodes in numbers. No, but you're not far off. It's a little earlier than that, it's not Germany. Tsarist Russia in the 19th century, we went, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we, I think, tripled, quadrupled in number. Uh, in, in, in within within a, within a, not even within a century, it was less than a century. So Tsarist Russia, and definitely within the cauldron of the Shoah, we find 
brave women having children in the madness. Rabbi Israel Talber tells the story of his mother, who, again, at, at, at risk of to her, to her own of her, to her own life, she she became pregnant. And they asked her, "Are you crazy?" And she said, "This is what we do in the world. We they want to destroy. We our job is it's continue to build, and this is how we build." Yaakov, Moshe, and Daniel are unique in the world. Anybody know what they have in common? And you could say maybe Adam and Rishon had this quality too, but it was more explicit when it came to Yaakov, Moshe, and Daniel. No, they see something. Hashem shows them the end of days. Remember at the end of his life before Yaakov blesses his, his sons, he, he, he was about to reveal the end of days, and Hashem prevents him. He's unable to do that, but he sees it. When we see the same thing, Moshe will see it as well, and the Neil himself will see it too. And when we say they saw it, I mean, they saw Torquemada and the Spanish Inquisition. They saw uh, the, the gas chambers in Auschwitz. They saw everything. Um, down to the last. And they saw the end too. Down, down, down to the very end. <clears throat> their sworn secrecy. Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov, with their immense gifts that they, that they bequeath us, they have Kabbalistic significance, Avram Chesed, Yitzhak Vura, Yaakov Tiferes, which is a synthesis of the, of the former two, they also gave the Jews, they set the mode, uh, the model for Jews in certain ways. What did they give us? A certain kind of, uh, think about an observance. Thank you very much. Exactly. The Gemara Baruchos tells us that Avram taught the Jews to David Shachris, Yitzhak Mincha, Yaakov Mayri. Interesting. We don't. Most of this, by de, by definition, it's an it's an addition. It's an add-on. The three fundamental. Now it's true. The Torah. Well, everybody davens. What you? What I think what you mean to say is that the Torah obligates. We just talked about this in Shabbos, didn't we? The Torah obligates tefillah without spelling out what that obligation is. So on a Torah level, you could be Yotzi by just saying thanks Hashem. Thanks Hashem. I just davened. Chazal, the Rabbonon, gave us these hard, fast obligations as a legacy from Abba Yitzhak and Yaakov to daven, sandwiching, bookmarking our days, Shachris, Mincha, Mayriv. As much we can say about them, we're going to leave it at this. Uh, comment now on the Shvatim, on the Holy Twelve Tribes. Um, Yaakov had um, more than twelve sons. Of course, he had Dina, famously. He also had, they also had twins with them, and there's a story about what happened to the twins. They must have passed away before Yaakov ultimately descends to Egypt. When we tally the 70 souls, and we include male and female, because we count Serach Bas Asher, we count Yochebed between the walls, the twin girls don't seem to figure, and the explanation is they all passed away by then. Everything comes from Hashem. We know that. And that idea is embodied by Yaakov's holy family. Yosef himself declares it when he tells his brothers, when they reunite back in Egypt after the sale and in, in the very dramatic denouement that comes in Parshish uh, Vayigash, he says, Hashem sent me before you to provide a refuge, survival in the land. This was all part of Ashkocha Pratis. Everything that played out in our lifetime was all meant to be as a way of salvaging and saving the Jewish people and, and taking us to the next level of the uh, redemptive process. 
they saw this. They saw that Hashem and Yosef is articulating it here, but that's everything that they that they are and that, and, and that they symbolize is the recognition of Hashem and how He works in the world. Rashi says there, Shem Shemaim Hayashavar Bafihem, which means um, saying Hashem's name was something they were fluent in. They said Baruch Hashem, in Yitz Hashem, and so on. They were constantly conscious of Hashem. That's what the Shvatim symbolized to us. They got it from their parents. Yaakov says to Rachel, Hashem has withheld children from you. That's how Yaakov says to Rachel. He's saying, not that you didn't have children, but recognizing everything ultimately is connected to Hashem. Hashem has withheld children from you, Rachel. A couple comments on some of the Shvatim. Yehuda, Yehuda is sent by Yaakov down to Goshen when they're going down to Egypt. Why? Do you remember this? Why is Yehuda sent down to Goshen by Yaakov? To establish yeshivas. Because the Jews can't be anywhere without Tyra. And first, before we come down, you have to pave the way. You know, another, uh, you know, another metaphor, you know, somebody would send somebody else down to build a nice house. Yehuda's not going there to build a nice house to make sure the plumbing works. He's there to make sure that there's Tyra in, instead. That is a harbinger of another future event in history. Does anybody know what this is? There's a future event that the Jews Bavel. go first, Bat Bavel. Where we went, where, where the exiles transpired in such a way that the first the Jews, the first Jews to really go to build Bavel were the Torah Jews. So that when the rest of the Jews got there, Bavel was already a great Torah center. Exactly, Maisa Avos Siman Labanim. You see this pattern in history. It's one of Yehuda's missions in the world to make sure that the Torah is has a foundation before the Jews can live there. That's why we never assimilated down in Egypt. Why we never took the Egyptian names and managed to uh, to rise above it. Um, they lived apart, and by doing so, the Egyptians scorned them. They didn't like them very much. It didn't, didn't, didn't endear them to the Egyptians, but that's what you do sometimes. Sheva yipot tzadik v'kam is the possible we associate with Yehuda. Seven times you fall, and the tzadik always gets up. Um, I don't know if you know this about life. Life can be pretty miserable. All of us have tests, misiones. Our job is to get up again, look at Klal Yisrael through history. There's no logic that we should still be here right now, but we keep getting up again. One of my kids was having a real, it, it, is it a frustrating time in life? Objectively frustrating, and I, I, I commiserate, and I have empathy. And I said, you're gonna have to just endure, there's no alternative. And the response, it's a very human response, I've already endured, I've already done everything there is to do. And there's just no point, was the implication, right? So my response was, Sheva Yipo Bakam, right? Keep plugging along. The only person who, who's, who's free from desisting from struggling is a dead person. As far as we're alive, the, the quality that defines Yehuda and defines his, his, uh, his descendants, I mean, we are, after all, called after Yehuda. What am I thinking of? The Jews. The term Jew, Yehudi, of course, is a, is a derivation of Yehuda. We're going to see this later on because Yehuda, there's a reason for that. We're going, to defi- we're going to develop this later on, why that would be. But Yehuda, that's the dominant tribe of the Jews till today. And part of it is symbolic and spiritual. It's, it's, it's this kind of a legacy. He always gets up again. He, he takes responsibilities for his mistakes, which is what you're thinking of as well. That's, what, that's the quality we seek in leaders. You know, leaders... People, he should, be, he should be spared leaders. I don't know if you know if you remember him. He's in my lifetime, but not yours. But you know, they're, they're the self-righteous kind of leaders. I'm thinking of Jimmy Carter, who think he is pure self-righteousness. Thinks that you know he's God gifts to, God's gift to the presidency. Until today, he's out there trying to save humanity from himself, and um, he doesn't see fault in himself. 
we want leaders who recognize their down their 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 their, their, their uh, negative traits. That's why he's able to admit his negative traits in the whole incident with Tamar. With Tamar, right? Tamar, he's he's willing to publicly embarrass himself to accept responsibility again. Same thing with the sale with the sale of Yosef. He takes responsibility, and we find that with his descendants, David and Melch, most most prominently, David makes mistakes, and he takes responsibility for them. Hard to do that. Most people don't. You realize. That's 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 what we that's what we look for in uh, in all future Jewish leaders. Yosef is the opposite force of Yehuda. He, on some level, represents pure tzidkus. He generates conflict. That's a quality that's inherent in Yosef. Uh, he brings out, and indeed, his descendant will be Mashiach ben Yosef, who will generate conflict. Will be a harbinger of the final Mashiach, and he'll die first. And ultimately, the Mashiach, who's the son of, da- of Yehuda, who's really Mashiach ben David, will come out and carry the Jews to the next level of the final Messianic era. Binyamin is the symbol of the guiltless one. He's not around when they sell Yosef into slavery. I said we were going to get to the sale of, of Yosef to slavery. Uh, you started asking about it, so let's, let's at least... See. They understood that they, they convened the Sanhedrin. They thought that he was a rodef of the level of Esav. They thought there's always one in the family, as there had been in previous generations. There was Ishmael, there was Asaph, and now there's Yosef. They really thought that he was a subversive force that was going to undermine the whole project of transmitting the Messiah, and therefore they felt that he either had to be killed, and Yehuda persuades them not to kill them, not to kill him, but to get rid of him. So he can't, he can't undermine uh, that their project. Binyamin, though, is guiltless. He is described as Ruach Abrios Nocha Himenu. Everybody loved him. There is that role to play in the family. It's part of the reason why part of the base of Mikdash will be situated within the Nachala, within the portion of the Yaman. We, today, right now, are actually almost certainly in that area of Binyamin because Binyamin is north of the base of Mikdash. The base of Mikdash is just a few uh, hundred meters south of here, more than a few hundred, a kilometer or two south of here. We're almost certainly situated in Binyamin. He is the one who never bows to Esav. He's not born yet. He therefore has a purity that merits having the uh, base of Mikdash. He's also vulnerable. That'll be reflected. We're going to see that soon, within a couple weeks. We're going to see that in the times of the Shoftim. Who here has learned um, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges? The tribe is almost obliterated wholesale in one of the first civil wars. The Jewish people fight each other and almost entirely eradicate the tribe of Binyamin. And we'll have to see it. It's done L'Shem Shemaim. There is an ongoing friction, tension that exists between the Shvatim. That's also part of Klal Yisrael. Two Jews, three opinions. It's something we have to contend with. We're called an Am Sheorif, a stiff-necked people, a tough people, hard to lead us. Also in the tension is the dynamism. We're also, um, sometimes it produces greatness. Um, Machlokis sometimes yields great fruit of learning. And when we unite, it doesn't get better than that. When we take all the disparate parts of us that represent everything in the world and we've come together, what happens? When all of Israel unites, come on, most famously, what happens when we get when we unite as a people? Ishachad Balevachad, like one man with one heart, we get the Torah. At Har Sinai, we're all united, we get the Torah. And that's apparently what we need to do in order to, to, to bring Mashiach. One of the mothers of the three boys that were murdered this summer commented, she said, on the one hand, it's a shame that it takes a war and a tragedy uh, to, to produce this. But nonetheless, we have to take a step back and realize this. Look at 
Klal Yisrael, with all of our diversity and all the major arguments that divide us till today, look at what happened this summer. There was an immense outpouring of unity, of common, of common uh, purpose that we serve in this world. In other words, with all of our diversity, when we come together, when, when Shifte Ka, literally when the, when the tribes of Akadosh Baruch Hu unite, uh, we, have the, we have the power to um, redeem the entire world. Very briefly, again, because the Torah covers it in such depth, and I'm assuming that you know this and you have this, I'm going to briefly rampage through the critical events of history that are Shibud Mitzrayim, the, um, the slavery in Egypt, Matan Taira, the uh, giving of the Taira, and then the 40 years in the desert. I'm going to do it very, very quickly. I'm going to start today and continue tomorrow. Here are some of the key points. Oh, how long is this period? How long does this period take? It's 400 years if you start counting as Rashi does from Yitzchak's birth. But you're right. Going down to Egypt, we go down, and 210 years later, we go out of Egypt, followed by another 40 years in the desert. The year, according to your timeline, if you want to take out your timeline, is 1217 before the Common Era. If you want to try to adjust it to the secular dates, uh, that's when Yitzchak's born. In 1522, before the Common Era, I'm going to start doing this more and more, because I, personally, I find it really helpful to attach a date to an event, and I think you'll do the same if you start to make notes of this. So, oh, 1522, that's... 1,522 years before the Common Era, I can suddenly connect it to my life. You can see what the, what the experience of time has been. In 1522, approximately, that's when we date Yaakov's descent to Egypt. How old was he again? I mentioned this. Erevrav? About 130. 130, there's that number again. That's the beginning of the slide to servitude. In 1451, Right, moving, moving later, 1451, Yosef dies, and in the short period after his death, the Jews experience, as we said, an unparalleled population explosion. They become, you can't really help it, a really visible minority that's not such a minority anymore, and they don't attract a lot of fans. Oh, here are the numbers. It's like in, like in Tsarist Russia, we jumped in the 19th century from 4 million to 16 million. And Egypt was even more immense. And also, also, both events trigger immense anti-Semitism. It doesn't endear us to the nations. Remember I mentioned this uh, before? We win by surviving Yitzchak's model, right? Just keep moving away when they, when they fill in your wells. Usually when we stand out, it's not good. We usually win when we survive beneath the radar. Shifra and Pua are among the heroes. Uh, the midwives in Egypt, of course, Shifra is, Hazal tell us in Goran Sota, Shifra is identified as Yocheved, Moshe's mother, Pua, Miriam is another shot that it's Elisheva, Aaron's wife. They're there, they've merited great houses, and, and uh, they've become the great women of Israel who tried to preserve the Jewish home for the future. What are the three houses that they get? There are the house of Torah, the base Medrash, the house of the Kahuna, which is the base of Mikdash, and the house of Malchus. The Malchus. How does that? How is that? If it's really, if it's true, that we go with the first chat that it's Yocheved and Miriam. Yocheved has three children. Who are Yocheved's three children? Miriam. Miriam is six years old when, when Moshe is born. Aaron is three years old when Moshe is born. Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe. Miriam is the progenitor of Malchus. She marries Kalev, and their descendant, their descendant ultimately is David Amelech. Kalev is Yehuda. 
So they forget the um, David, that's Malchus. Aaron, obviously, is Kahuna. Moshe embodies Torah. Those are the three great crowns, and those are the three great houses. We talk about women and the house, and I mentioned this Kol Kudabas Melech Pnima, the great glory, the great honor of women is internal. We talk about a man's vice is his wife. In the modern world, that's a put down. When you ask a woman, what are you? And if she would respond, you hear this decreasingly. But if a woman responds, oh, I'm just a housewife, you ever hear such a depression? That's like a put down. It's something that's a source of shame for her because, you know, if she were a uh, you know, Wall Street investment banker, oh, 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 then you'd want her autograph, right? But if she's just a housewife, that's not so impressive. By us, it's really the great, one of the great images of all civilization. A woman who is the home, who raised the balabosta, who raises children like, like Shifra and Pua, like Yochebed and Miriam, even on a totally logical, rational level, think about it. I don't know how you think about your life. I always imagine, wouldn't it be great if I'm alive and I'm walking on this planet and I can leave something of a legacy? And I'd like to do something to make the world, I'd like to leave behind the world that's slightly better than when I, when I got here. I, I teach my kids to do this. I mean, you have to do everything. You can't fix the entire planet in a day. And you can't, when you're in a shul, put back every single door and book. Well, some people do that. But I would say, you know, for lack of time, you can't every day put back every single door that people leave off the shelves. So what I tell my kids to do is, as you're leaving, always put your door back and maybe grab one or two others. And that way, you're leaving the place slightly better than when you got there. And if you do that, not just when you come to shul, but in every single thing you do in your life, you leave a greater legacy. But you think about all the things that we do in our lives. Most of them don't leave much of an impact. Most of our jobs, frankly, don't amount to that much. We fill our bank accounts, but you know, we empty those out pretty quickly too. So you make money, you lose money, and that's, that kind of like equals itself out. That's a wash. So what are you left with at the end? What have you really impacted? You impact through Torah, through mitzvos. But think about what women do. They bring new life. Ideally, they nurture them. They teach them how to be how to be menshi or not menshi. Those early childhood years really form the core character of the person as they grow up. The midos often follow as a result of that. They're the architects of civilization and ultimately the facilitators of the Mashiach. I don't know many people and many jobs in the world that leave a greater legacy and an impact in the universe. So we praise that. We we see that as, as immensely powerful and positive, not not at all a put down. Meanwhile, over in Har Seir, while the Jews are uh, experiencing the travails of uh, enforced slavery, who's sitting in Har Seir? Esau's descendants inherit Har Seir, which is, which is northeast of there. Today it's South Jordan. If you picture on a map, it's South Jordan. Um, they're stagnant. They're in what's called Edom, another term, Edom Red for Esau. And we contrast these. By the way, we contrast this, pay attention to the Haggadah, this coming Pesach, and there's a sudden, seemingly non sequitur mention about Esau. Who's Esau? What do I care about him right now? And the Mefarshim on the Haggadah explain, we're meant to understand history through the prison of Yaakov versus Esau. And when one up, the other one, one is up, the other one's down. In this case, um, think of the contrast. Yaakov is all ups and downs. It's going down to Egypt, Shibud Mitzrayim, the slavery, coming back up through Egypt. We have to go, we have an expression, we're going to see it in the second chapter of Makos, a Yerida Litzorach Aliyah. Sometimes you have to go down in order to come back up again. Who's in the second chapter? Yerida Litzorach Aliyah, key idea, and it's, it's, it's really embodies who we are. Sometimes you have to break, you go down to break your Midos to go back up again to fix it. In contrast, the Haggadah makes this very clear. 
Asab is a flatliner. Not much progress there. They're all about this world, and they're stagnant. They don't go down to Egypt, and they don't come back up from Egypt. And that's what the Haggadah is trying to express, is this idea, as, as much as we go up and down, and ultimately up, 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 they stay flatlining. That's their, that's their mission in the world. I mean, that's, that's what they do in the world. Not much, not much movement. We're all about movement. We're all about change and dynamism and growth. The emerging nation that comes out of Egypt is spirited, highly spirited, highly intelligent. This is before Matan Torah. They have prophets. Even before Moshe was a prophet, we have Amram, his father, and others were Nevi'im. Rambam mentions this in Hilchus Malachim. Um, they're a nation characterized by Chachamim, immensely wise people. How, how could it be otherwise? They come from the Avos, they come from the Shiftekah, they guard the Messiah. They have, remember, Adam's Messiah that they get all the way through Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. It's not the Torah so much, but it's, it's certainly elements of it. Especially the longest living of the Shvatim, namely, who, who outlives all of, the, all of the tribes, very significant, plays a major role because of it. Levi. Levi lives longer than everybody else. Some of the Mepharshim explain that may have been contributed significantly to the unique role that the, that the tribe of Levi plays throughout all of history because their forefathers stayed alive and therefore could influence them, could still impart to them the greatness of the Messiah even in the darkness of slavery and they were receptive. They heard it. And what do you see? What do you see? Let me just finish the idea and then you'll ask questions. Shavit Levi never slips to idolatry. And we see with other Shvatim, they do slip. There are elements of idol worship. Levi never. Some of the nation neglected certain mitzvahs. They neglected, for example, Brismila. Levi never does. Uh, many rebelled against Hashem. Levi never does. Levi also was the only Shavit famously, come on, you know this, to not serve the eagle, to not, not be a part of the episode with the golden calf. And, and, and not only did they not serve, when Moshe turns and it says, Mila Shem Eli. Dramatically, who who is for Hashem? Come to me! All simultaneously, all of the tribe of Levi rallies around Moshe to engage in civil war to defeat uh, the elements of Tuma. So Levi has a very distinct, important role to play. Still, some of the Jews had rebelled against Hashem. Not Levi, but others. The Egyptians influenced them. The Egyptians came to hate the people. And when the Egyptians started hating the people, it prevented further assimilation, another pattern in history. Sometimes anti-Semitism helps us. Sadly, it has to come to that, but you see that. In countries where the non-Jews welcome us, we leave in droves. You don't have to go much further than America, but we'll see, we'll see lots of societies in history where that happens and it's devastating for us. So Hashem does something very logical. Make the non-Jews hate us, and it turns us back to Hashem. We see that pattern in Egypt, Finally, the last comment I'm going to comment, and tomorrow we're going to start, we're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu. We know that the, we know famously Chazal tell us that in Egypt, Egypt was the lowest of lows. It's on par with Canaan, the nation, the, the quality of the people. They were, as we say in Hebrew, I don't want to get a Hebrew word, they were disgusting, they were foul. Uh, they, uh, it's, it's described in the Medrash, uh, extreme acts of barbarism, something to the effect of one of the characteristics to, to explain this idea, that in Egypt they actually had men marrying men and women marrying women. Can you even imagine such a thing? No, not the Jews, the Egyptians. The nature of the Egyptians. And it says, it says there, Hazal uh, teaches that the Jews Men actually married men and women married women. Can you imagine such a society? You've never heard of such a thing before. Shocking. 
Uh, that was Egypt. Anyway, the Jews sunk to what's called the 49 levels of Tuma, of impurity, and had they gone one level worse, 50th level, it would have been the point of no return. They never would have come back. That's why we had to leave Boba Lila right there in the middle of the night, just in the nick of time before we slipped to irrevocable Tuma. When they leave Egypt, Am Yisrael is born. And like a birth, there is all the trappings of a human birth. There's a sense of urgency, of immediacy, of you didn't plan for this. You know, uh, I remember one year, I tried to be very dramatic in my Pesach Seder. One year, we literally reenacted Yutias Misraim. Everybody had to grab a suitcase and they could take one thing. So my little kids are my doll and my this. And, you know, everybody's like running and going. And we leave the house and we, go, we run up to the roof. That's what it was. It was this sudden sense of urgency. We left just in the nick of time. Here's Rafa Victor Miller. Rabbi Vida Miller says, this is misunderstood. It does not mean that the Jews had become like the Egyptians. Quite the contrary. All the time they were in Egypt, they maintained their regal, noble ways. Remember, we're talking about Bnei, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. They were refined, high-level people. Relative to the depravity around them, the Jews did actually very, very well. How do we understand the statement that they sunk to the 49th level of Tuma relative to what we would expect for them? Relative to that, they, they almost fell. For them it was a Yerida, again a Yerida Litzor Chaliyah, but a Yerida nonetheless. The, their Midos weakened due to the hardships of slavery and the, the Egyptian influence. And that's why Kaddish Baruch Hu had to hasten them out of Egypt before they lost their essential identity and they would become a new identity, and the process was necessary. We're talking about Matantara, why they had to go down to come back up again. Sometimes you have to experience Abdus slavery in the worst way to know how to be a proper slave in the best way and Eved Hashem. And that's the process the Jews have to go through in order to be in the right mental state to receive Torah. Thanks for a great day, everybody.